Welcome to the Locked Room. Stories from the golden age of mystery and crime fiction. I'm Martell, reading The Ordinary Hairpins by E.C. Bentley. A small committee of friends had persuaded Lord Aviemore to sit for a presentation portrait and the painter to whom they gave the commission was Philip Trent. It was a task that fascinated him, for he had often seen and admired in public places the high, half-bald skull, vulture nose, and grim mouth of the peer who was said to be deeper in theology than any other layman in all but a few of the clergy, whose devotion to charitable work had made him nationally honored. It was not until the third sitting that Lord Avonmore's somber taciturnity was laid aside. I believe, Mr. Trent, he said abruptly, you used to have a portrait of my late sister-in-law here. I was told that it hung in the studio. Trent continued his work quietly. It was just a rough drawing I made after seeing her in Carmen before her marriage. It has been hung in here ever since. Before your first visit, I removed it. The sitter nodded slowly. Very thoughtful of you. Nevertheless, I should like very much to see it, if I may. Of course. Trent drew the frame sketch. From behind a curtain, Lord Aviemore gazed long in silence at Trent's very spirited likeness of the famous singer while the artist worked busily to capture the first expression of feeling that he had so far seen on that impassive face. Lighted and softened by melancholy, it looked for the first time noble. At last the sitter turned to him. I would give a good deal, he said simply, to possess this drawing. Trent shook his head. I don't want to part with it. He laid a few strokes carefully on the canvas. If you care to know why, I'll tell you. It is my personal memory of a woman whom I found more admirable than any other I ever saw. Lillimore Virgilin's beauty and physical perfection were unforgettable. Her voice was a marvel. Her spirit matched them. Her fearlessness, her kindness... Her vigor of mind and character, her feeling for beauty, were what I heard talked about even by people not given to enthusiasm. Oh, she had weaknesses, I dare say. I never spoke to her. I heard her sing very many times, but I knew no more about her than many other strangers. A number of my friends knew her, though, and all I ever gathered about her made me inclined to place her on a pedestal. I was ten years younger then. It did me good. Lord Avonmore said nothing for a few minutes, then he spoke slowly. I am not of your temperament or your circle, Mr. Trent. I do not worship anything of this world, but I do not think you were far wrong about Lady Avonmore. Once I thought differently. When I heard that my eldest brother was about to marry a prima donna, a woman whose portrait was sold all over the world, who was famous for extravagance in dress and what seemed to me self-advertising conduct. 
I was appalled when I heard from him of this engagement. I will not deny that I was shocked, too, at the idea of marriage with the daughter of Norwegian peasants. She was country-bred, then, Trent observed. One never heard much about her childhood. Yes, she was an orphan of ten years old when Colonel Stamer and his wife went to lodge at her brother's farm for the fishing. They fell in love with the child, and having none of their own, they adopted her. All this my brother told me. He knew, he said, just what I would think. He only asked me to meet her, and then to judge if he had done well or ill. Of course, I asked him to introduce me at the first opportunity. Lord Aviemore paused and stared thoughtfully at the portrait. She charmed everyone who came near her, he went on presently. I resisted the spell, but before they had been long married, she had conquered all my prejudice. It was like a child I saw that she delighted in the popularity and the great income her gifts had brought her, but she was not really childish. It was not that she was what is called intellectual, but she had a singular spaciousness of mind in which nothing little or mean could live. It had, I used to fancy, some kinship with her Norwegian landscapes of mountain and sea. She was, as you say, extremely beautiful, with the vigorous purity of the fair-haired northern race. Her marriage with my brother was the happiest I have ever known. He paused again while Trent worked on in silence, and soon the low meditative voice resumed. It was about this time, six years ago, in the middle of March, that I had the terrible news from Tormina, the day after my return from Canada. I went out to her at once. When I saw her, I was aghast. She showed no emotion, but there was in her calmness the most unearthly sense of desolation that I have ever received. From time to time, she would say, as if she spoke to herself, it was all my fault. At Trent's exclamation of surprise, Lord Abbeymore looked up. Few people, he said, know the whole of the tragedy. You have heard that a slight shock of earthquake caused the collapse of the villa, that my brother and his child were found dead in the ruins. You have heard, I suppose, that Lady Aviemore was not in the house at the time. You have heard that she drowned herself afterwards. But you have evidently not heard that my brother had a presentiment that this visit to Sicily would end in death and wished to abandon it at the last moment, that his wife laughed away his forebodings with her strong common sense. But we belong to the Highlands, Mr. Trent. We are of that blood and tradition, and such interior warnings as my brother had are no trifles to us. However, she charmed his fears away. He had, she told me, entirely lost all sense of uneasiness. On the tenth day of their stay, her husband and only child were killed. She did not think, as you may think, that there was coincidence here. The shock had changed her whole mental being. She believed then, as I believed, that my brother inwardly foreknew that death awaited him if he went to that place. He relapsed into silence. I know slightly, Trent remarked, a man called Selby, a solicitor who was with Lady Avimore just after her husband's death. 
Lord Aviemore said that he remembered Mr. Selby. He said it with such a total absence of expression of any kind that the subject of Selby was killed instantly, and he did not resume that of the tragedy of the woman whom the world remembered still as Lillymore Virgiland. It was a few months later when the portrait of Lord Aviemore was to be seen at the show of the NSPP, that Trent received a friendly letter from Arthur Selby. After praising the picture, Selby went on to ask Trent if he would do him the favor of calling at his office by appointment for a private talk. I should like, he wrote, to put a certain story before you, a story with a problem in it. I gave it up as a bad job long ago myself, but... Seeing your portrait of A reminded me of your reputation as an unraveler. Thus it happened that a few days later Trent found himself alone with Selby in the offices of the firm in which that very capable, somewhat dandified lawyer was a partner. They spoke of the portrait, and Trent told of the strange exultation with which his sitter had spoken of the dead lady. Selby listened rather grimly. The story I referred to, he said, is the Avi Moore story. I acted for the Countess when she was alive. I was with her at the time of her suicide. I am an executor of her will. In the strictest confidence, I should like to tell you that story as I know it and hear what you think about it. Trent was all attention. He was deeply interested and said so. Selby, with gloomy eyes, folded his arms on the broad writing-table between them and began. "'You know all about the accident,' he said. "'I will start with the 15th of March, when Lord Aviemore and his son were buried in the cemetery at Tower Mina. That was before I came on the scene. Lady Aviemore had already discharged all the servants except her own maid, with whom she was living at the Hotel Cavour. There, as I gathered afterwards, she seldom left her rooms. She was undoubtedly overwhelmed by what had happened, though she seems never to have lost her grip on herself. Her brother-in-law, the present Lord Aviemore, had come out to join her. He had only just returned from Canada. Selby raised a finger and repeated slowly, from Canada, you will remember. He had gone out to get ideas about the emigration prospect, I understand. He remained at the hotel, meaning to accompany Lady Aviemore home when she should feel equal to the journey. It was not until the 18th that we received a long telegram from her asking us to send someone representing the firm to her at Taormina. She stated that she wished to discuss business matters without delay, but did not yet feel able to travel. At the cost of some inconvenience, I went out myself, as I happened to speak Italian pretty well. You understand that Lady Aviemore, who already possessed considerable means of her own, came into a large income under her husband's will. She was a client who could afford to indulge her whims, Trent observed. If you were already her advisor, she probably expected you to come. Just so. Well, I went out to Tower Mina, as I say. On my arrival, Lady Aviemore saw me and told me quite calmly that she was acquainted with the provisions of her late husband's will and that she now wished to make her own. 
I took her instructions and prepared the will at once. The next day the British Council and I witnessed her signature. You may remember, Trent, that when the contents of her will became public after her death, they attracted a good deal of attention. I don't think I heard of it, Trent said. If I was giving myself a holiday at the time, I wouldn't know much about what was going on. Well, there were some bequests of jewelry and things to intimate friends. She left two thousand pounds to her brother, Knut Vergeland, of Mybolstad in Norway, and a hundred pounds to her maid, Maria Crow, also a Norwegian, who had been with her a long time. The whole of the rest of her property she left to her brother, the new Lord Aviemore, unconditionally. That surprised me because I had been told that he had disapproved bitterly of the marriage and hadn't concealed his opinion from her or anyone else. But she never bore malice, I knew, and what she said to me at Taormina was that she could think of nobody who would do so much good with the money as her brother-in-law. From that point of view, she was justified. He is said to spend nine-tenths of his income on charities of all sorts, and I shouldn't wonder if it was true. Anyhow, she made him her heir. And what did he say to it? Selby coughed. Well, there is no evidence that he knew anything about it before her death. No evidence. He repeated slowly, and when told of it afterwards, he showed precious little feeling of any kind. Of course, that's his way, but now let me get on with the story. Lady Aviemore asked me to remain to transact business for her until she should leave Taormina, and she did so on the 27th of March, accompanied by Lord Aviemore, myself, and her maid, to shorten the railway journey, as she told us she had planned to go by boat, first to Brindisi, then to Venice, and so home by rail. The boats from Brindisi to Venice all go in the daytime, except once a week when a boat from Corfu arrives in the evening and goes on about eleven. She decided to get to Brindisi in time to catch that boat. So that was what we did. Had a few hours in Brindisi, dined there, and went on board about ten o'clock. Lady Avimore complained of a bad headache. She went at once to her cabin, which was a deck cabin, asking me to send someone to collect her ticket at once, as she wanted to sleep as soon as possible and not be awakened again. That was soon done. Shortly before the boat left, the maid came to me on her way to her own quarters and told me that her mistress had retired. Soon after we were out of the harbor, I turned myself in. At that time, Lord Aviemore was leaning over the rail on the deck onto which Lady Aviemore's cabin opened and some distance from the cabin. There was nobody else about that I could see. It was just beginning to blow, but it didn't trouble me, and I slept very well. It was a quarter to eight next morning when Lord Aviemore came into my cabin. He was fearfully pale and agitated. He told me that the Countess could not be found, that the maid had gone to her cabin to call her at 7.30, and found it empty. I got up in a hurry and went with him to the cabin. The dressing case she had taken with her was there. Her fur coat, her hat, her jewelry case, and her handbag lay on the berth. 
which had not been slept in. The only other thing was a note, unaddressed, lying open on the table. Lord Aviemore and I read it together. After the inquiry at Venice, I kept the note. Here it is. Selby unfolded and handed over a sheet of thin ruled paper torn from a block. Trent read the following words written in a large, firm, rounded hand. Such an ending to such a marriage is far worse than death. It was all my fault. This is not sorrow. It is complete destruction. I have been kept up till now only by the resolution I took on the day when I lost them, by the thought of what I am going to do now. I take my leave of a world I cannot bear any more. There followed the initials L.A. Trent read and reread the pitiful message, so full of the awful egotism of grief. Then he looked up in silence at Selby. The Italian authorities found that she had met her death by drowning. They could not suppose anything else, nor could I. But now listen, Trent. Soon after her death, I got an idea into my head, and I have puzzled over the affair a lot, without much result. I did find out a fact or two, though, and it struck me the other day, that if I could discover something, you could probably do much better. Trent, still studying the paper, ignored this tribute. Well, he said, what is your idea, Selby? Selby, evading the direct question, said, I'll tell you the facts are referred to. That sheet, you see, is torn from an ordinary ruled writing pad. Now I have shown it to a friend of mine who was in the paper business. He has told me that it is a make of paper, never sold in Europe, but sold very largely in Canada. Next, Lady Aviemore never was in Canada, and there was no paper pad in her dressing case or anywhere in the cabin. Neither was there any pen or ink or any fountain pen. The ink, you see, is a pale sort of gray ink. Trent nodded. Continental hotel ink, in fact. This was written in a hotel then, probably the one where you had dinner in Brindisi. You could identify her writing, of course. Except that it seems to have been written with a bad pen, a hotel pen, no doubt. It is her usual handwriting. Any other exhibits? Trent asked after a brief silence. Only this. Selby took from a drawer a woman's handbag of elaborate beadwork. Later on, when I saw Lord Aviemore about the disposal of her valuables and personal effects, I mentioned that there was this bag with a few trifles in it. Give it away, he said. Do what you like with it. Well, Selby went on, smoothing the back of his head with an air of slight embarrassment. I kept it. As a sort of memento, what? The things in it don't mean anything to me, but you have a look at them. He turned the bag out upon the writing table. Here you are. Handkerchief, notes, and change, nail file keys, powder, thing, lipstick, comb, hairpins. Four hairpins. Trent took them in his hand. Quite new ones, I should say. Have they anything to tell us, Selby? I don't see how. They're just ordinary black hairpins, as you say. They look too fresh and bright to have been used. 
Trent looked at the small heap of objects on the table. And what's that last thing, the little box? Oh, that's a box of Ixtal, the anti-seasick stuff. Two doses are gone. It's quite good, I believe. Trent opened the box and stared at the pink capsules. So you can buy it abroad. I was with her when she bought it in Brindisi, just before we went on board. Again, Trent was silent a few moments. Then all you discovered that was odd was this about the Canadian paper and the note having obviously been prepared in advance. Queer enough, certainly. But going back before that last day or two, all through the time you were with Lady Aviemore, did nothing come under your notice that seemed strange? Selby fingered his chin. If you put it like that, I do remember a thing that I thought curious at the time, though I never dreamed of its having anything to do. Yes, I know, but you asked me here to go over the thing properly, didn't you? That question of mine is one of the routine inquiries. Well, it was simply this. A day or two before we left Sicily, I was standing in the hotel lobby when the mail arrived. As I was waiting to see if there was anything for me, the porter put down on the counter a rather smart-looking package that had just come, done up the way they do at a really first-class shop, if you know what I mean. It looked like a biggish book or a box of chocolates or something, and it had French stamps on it, but the postmark I didn't notice. And this was addressed to Mademoiselle Maria Crow. You remember the Countess's maid. Well, she was there waiting, and presently the man handed it to her. Maria went off with it, and just then her mistress came down the big stairs. She saw the parcel, and just held out her hand for it, and Maria passed it over as if it were a matter of course, and Lady Aviemore went upstairs with it. I thought it was quaint, if she was ordering goods in her maid's name, but I thought no more of it, because Lady Aviemore decided that evening about leaving the place, and I had plenty to attend to. And if you want to know, Selby went on, as Trent opened his lips to speak, where Maria Crow is, all I can tell you is that I took her ticket in London for Christian Sand, where she lives, and where I sent her legacy to her, which she acknowledged. Now then. Trent laughed at the solicitor's tone, and Selby laughed too. His friend walked to the fireplace and pensively adjusted his tie. Well, I must be off, he announced. How about dining with me on Friday at the Cactus? If by that time I have anything to suggest about all this, I'll tell you. You will? All right, make it eight o'clock. And he hastened away. But on the Friday, he seemed to have nothing to suggest. He was so reluctant to approach the subject that Selby supposed him to be chagrined at his failure to achieve anything and did not press the matter. It was six months later, on a sunny afternoon in September, that Trent walked up the valley road at Mickelbustad, looking farewell at the mountain far ahead, the white-capped mother of the torrent that roared down a twenty-foot fall beside him. He had been a week in this remote backwater of Europe, seven hours by motorboat from the nearest place that ranked as a town. The savage beauty of that watery landscape where sun and rain work together daily to achieve an unearthly purity in the scene, 
had justified far better than he had hoped. His story that he had come there in search of matter for his brush. He had worked, and he had explored, and had learned as much as he could of his neighbors. It was little enough for the postmaster, in whose house he had a room, spoke only a trifle of German, and no one else, as far as he could discover, had anything but Norwegian, of which Trent knew no more than what could be got from a traveler's phrase book. But he had seen every dweller in the valley, and he had paid close attention to the household of Canute Vergeland, the rich man of the valley who had the largest farm. He and his wife, elderly and grim-faced peasants, lived with one servant in an old turf-roofed steading not far from the post office. Not another person, Trent was sure, inhabited the house. He had decided at last that his voyage of curiosity to Mickelbostad had been ill-inspired. Canute and his wife were no more than a thrifty peasant pair. They had given him a meal one day when he was sketching near the place, and they had refused with gentle firmness to take any payment. Both had made on him an impression of complete trustworthiness and competency in the life they led so utterly out of the world. That day, as Trent gazed up the mountain, his eye was caught by a flash of sunlight against the dense growth of birches running from top to bottom of the steep cliff that walled the valley to his left. It was a bright blink, about half a mile from where he stood. It remained steady, and at several points above and below, he saw the same bright appearance. He perceived there must be a wire, and a well-used wire, led up the precipitous hill face among the trees. Trent went towards the spot on the road whence the wire seemed to be taken upwards. He had never been so far in this direction until now. In a few minutes he came to the opening among the trees of a rough track leading upwards among rocks and roots, at such an angle that only a vigorous climber could attempt it. Close by in the edge of the thicket stood a tall post, from the top of which a wire stretched upwards through the branches in the same direction as the path. Trent slapped the post with a resounding blow. Heavens and earth, he exclaimed, I'd forgotten the satyr. And at once he began to climb. A thick carpet of rich pasture began where the deep birch belt ended at the top of the height. It stretched away for miles over a gently sloping upland. As Trent came into the open, panting after a strenuous forty-minute climb, the heads of a score of browsing cattle were sleepily turned towards him. Beyond them wandered many more, and two hundred yards away stood a tiny hut, turf-roofed. This place was the satyr, the high grassland attached to some valley farm. Trent had heard long ago and never thought since of this feature of Norway's rural life. At the appointed time, the cattle would be driven up by an easier detour to the mountain pastures for their summer holiday, to be attended there by some peasant, usually a young girl, who lived solitary with the herd. Such wires as that he had seen were kept bright by the daily descent of milk churns, let down by a line from above and received by a farmhand at the road below. 
and there at the side of the hut a woman stood. Trent, as he approached, noted her short, rough skirt and coarse sack-like upper garment, her thick gray stockings and clumsy clogs. About her bare head, her pale gold hair was fastened in tight plaits. As she looked up on hearing Trent's footfall, two heavy silver earrings dangled about the tanned and careworn face of this very type of the middle-aged peasant woman of the region. She seized her task of scraping a large cake of chocolate into a bowl and straightened her tall body. Smiling with lean hands on her hips, she spoke in Norwegian, greeting him. Trent made the proper reply. And that, he added in his own tongue, is a large part of all the Norwegian I know. Perhaps, madam, you speak English. Her light blue eyes looked puzzlement, and she spoke again, pointing down to the valley. He nodded, and she began to talk pleasantly in her own known speech. From within the hut, she brought two thick mugs. She pointed rapidly to the chocolate in the bowl to himself and herself. Oh, I should like it of all things, he said. You are most kind and hospitable, like all your people. What a pity it is we have no language in common. She brought him a stool and gave him the chocolate cake and a knife, making signs that he should continue the scraping. Then within the hut, she kindled a fire of twigs and began to boil water in a black pot. Plainly, this was her dwelling the roughest Trent had ever seen. He could discern that on two small shelves were ranged a few pieces of chipped earthenware. A wooden bed placed with straw and two neatly folded blankets filled a third of the space in the hut. All the carpentering was of the rudest. From a small chest in a corner, she drew a biscuit tin half full of flat cakes of stale rye bread. There seemed to be nothing else in the tiny place but a heap of twigs for fuel. She made chocolate in the two mugs, and then at Trent's insistence in dumb show, she sat on the only stool at the rude table outside the hut, where her guest made a seat of an upturned milking pail. She continued to talk amiably and unintelligibly while he finished with difficulty the half of a bread cake. I believe, madam, he said at last, setting down his empty mug, you were talking simply to hear the sound of your own voice. In your case, that is excusable. You don't understand English, so I will tell you to your face that it is a most wonderful voice. I should say, he went on thoughtfully, that you ought to have been one of the greatest sopranos that ever lived. She heard him calmly and shook her head, as not understanding. Well, don't say I didn't break it gently. Trent protested. He rose to his feet. Madam, I know that you are Lady Aviemore. I have broken in on your solitude, and I ask pardon for that, but I could not be sure unless I saw you. I give you my word that no one else knows or shall ever know from me what I have discovered. He made as if to return by the way he had come, but the woman held up a hand. A singular change had come over her brown face. A lively spirit now looked out of her desolate blue eyes. She smiled another and a much more intelligent smile. After a few moments, she spoke in English, fluent but with a slight accent of her country. 
Sir, she said, you have behaved very nicely up till now. It has been an amusement for me. There is not much comedy on the satyr. Now, will you have the goodness to explain? He told her in a few words that he had suspected she was still alive, that he had thought over such facts it has come to his knowledge, and had been led to think she was probably in that place. I thought you might guess I had recognized you, he added, so it seemed best to assure you that your secret was safe. Was it wrong to speak? She shook her head, gazing at him with her chin on a hand. Presently she said, I think you are not against me. I can feel that, though I do not understand why you wanted to search out my secret, and why you kept it, when you had dragged it into the light. I dragged it, because I'm curious, he answered. I have kept it, and will keep it, because, oh, well, because it is your own. And because to me, Lillamore Vergeland is a sort of divinity. She laughed suddenly. Incense, and I in these rags in this hovel, with what unpleasantness I can see in this little spotty piece of a cheap mirror. Oh, well, you have come a long way, curious man, and it would be cruel not to gratify your curiosity a little more. Shall I tell you? After all, it was simple. It was very soon after the disaster that the resolve came to me. I never hesitated. It was my fault that we had gone to Sicily. You have heard that, yes. I see it in your face. I felt I must leave the world I knew, and that knew me. I never really thought of suicide. As for a convent, unhappily, there is none for people with minds like mine. I meant simply to disappear, and the only way to succeed was to get the reputation of being dead. I thought it out for some days and nights. Then I wrote in the name of my maid to an establishment in Paris where I used to buy things for the stage. Ha! Ah, Trent exclaimed. I heard of that, and I guessed. I sent money, she went on, and I ordered a dark brown transformation. That is a lady's word for wig. Some stuff for darkening the skin, various pigments, pencils. Et tout le bizarre. My maid did not know what I had sent for. She only handed the parcel to me when it came. She would have thrown herself in the fire for me, I think, my maid Maria. When the things arrived, I announced that I would return to England by the route you have heard of, perhaps. He nodded. The route that gave you a night passage to Venice and you disguised yourself in your cabin at Brindisi and slipped off in the dark before the boat started. Indeed, I was not such a fool, she returned. What if my absence had been discovered somehow before the boat left Brindisi? That could easily happen, and then goodbye to the fiction of my suicide. No, when we reached Brindisi, we had, as I knew, some hours there. We left our things at a hotel where we were to dine, and then I put on a thick veil and went out alone. At the office near the harbor, I took a second-class passage to Venice for myself in the name of Miss Julia Simmons, in the same boat I had planned to take. It would be at the quay, they told me, in an hour. Then I went into the poorer streets of the town and brought some clothes, very ugly ones, 
Some shoes, toilet things. Some black hairpins, Trent murmured. Naturally black, she assented. My own gilt pins would have looked queer in a dark brown wig, and I had to have pins to fasten it properly. I bought also a little cheap portmanteau thing and put my purchases in it. Then I took a cab to the quay, found the boat had arrived, gave one of the stewards a tip to show me the berth named on my ticket and to carry my baggage there. After that I went shopping again on shore. I bought a long Macintosh coat and a funny little cap, the very things for Miss Simmons, took them to the hotel and pushed them under the things my maid had already packed in my big case. On the steamer, when Maria had left me, and I had locked the cabin door, I arranged a dark, rather catty sort of face for myself and fitted on Miss Simmons' hair. I put on her Macintosh and cap. When the boat began to move away from the quay, I opened my door an inch and peeped out. As I expected, everyone was looking over the rail, and so, the sooner the better, I just slipped out, shut the cabin door, and walked straight to Miss Simmons' berth at the other end of the ship. There is not much more to say. At Venice, I did not look for the others and never saw them. I went on to Paris and wrote to my brother Canute that I was alive, telling him what I meant to do if he would help me. Such things do not seem so mad to a true child of Norway. What things? Trent asked. Things of deep sorrow. Malady of the soul. Escaped from the world. He and his wife have been true and good to me. I am supposed to be her cousin, Hilda Bjornstad, in my will I left the money, more than enough to pay for me. But they did not know that when they welcomed me here. She seized and smiled vaguely at Trent, who was considering her story with eyes that gazed fixedly at the skyline. Yes, of course, he remarked presently in an abstracted manner. That was it, as you say. So simple. And now let me tell you, he went on with a change of tone, one or two little details you have forgotten. At Brindisi, you bought, just before going on board with the others, a box of the stuff called Ixtal, because it looked as if there might be bad weather. You took a dose at once and another a little later, as the directions told you. You might have needed more of it before reaching Venice, but as Mr. Selby was with you when you bought it, you thought it wiser to leave it behind when you vanished. Also, you left behind four new black hairpins, which had somehow, I suppose, got loose inside your handbag and were found there by Selby. You see, Lady Avimore, it was Selby who brought me into this. He told me all the facts he knew. He showed me your bag and its contents, but he didn't attach any importance to the two things I have just mentioned. She raised her eyebrows just perceptibly. I cannot see why he should, and I cannot see why he should bring in you or anybody. Because he had some vague notion of your brother-in-law having either caused your death or at least having known of your intention to commit suicide. He never told me so outright, but it was plain that that was in his mind. Selby wanted me to clear that up if I could. You see, your brother-in-law stood to benefit enormously by your death, and then there was the matter of the note announcing your suicide. 
It announced, she remarked, the truth, that I was leaving a world I could not bear any longer. The words might mean one thing or another, but what about the note? The perfectly truthful note was written with pen and ink, of which there was none in your cabin. It was written on paper which had been torn from a writing pad and no pad was found. Also, the make of paper is sold in Canada, never in Europe, and you had never been in Canada. Your brother-in-law had just come back from Canada, you see. But did not Selby perceive that Charles is a saint? inquired the lady with a touch of impatience. Surely that was plain. More Dominic than Francis, no doubt, but an evident saint. In my slight knowledge of him, Trent admitted, he did strike me in that way, but Selby is a lawyer, you see. Lawyers don't understand saints. Besides, your brother-in-law had taken a dislike to him, I think, and so perhaps he felt critical about your brother-in-law. It is true, she said. He did not care about Mr. Selby, because he disliked all men who were foppish and worldly. But now I will tell you, that evening in the hotel at Brindisi, I wanted to write that note, and I asked Charles for a sheet from the block he had in his hand and was just going to write on, that is all. I wrote it in the hotel writing room and took it afterwards in my bag to the cabin. We supposed you had written it beforehand, Trent said, and that was one of the things that led me to feel morally certain you were still alive. I'll explain. If, as we thought, you had written the note in the hotel, your suicide was a premeditated act. Yet it was afterwards that Selby saw you buying that Ixtal stuff, and it was plain that you had taken two doses. And it struck me, though it didn't seem to have struck Selby, that it was unlikely that anyone resolved to drown herself at sea would begin treating herself against seasickness. And then there were those new black hairpins. The sight of them was a revelation to me, for I knew, of course, with that hair of yours, you had probably never used a black hairpin in your life. The countess felt at her pale gold plates and gravely held out to him a black hairpin. In the valley, we use nothing else. It is very different in the valley, I know he said gently. I was speaking of my world, the world that you have left. I was led by those hairpins to think of your having changed your appearance, and I even guessed at what was in the parcel that came for your maid, which Selby had told me about. She regarded her guest with something of respect. It still remains, she said, to explain how you knew it was in Norway, and here, as a poor farm servant, that I should hide myself. It seemed to me the last thing in the world, your world, that a woman who had lived my life would be expected to do. All the same, I thought it was a strong possibility, he answered. Your problem, you see, was just what you say, to hide yourself. And you had another. You had to make a living, somehow. Everything you possessed, except some small amount in cash, I suppose, you left behind when you disappeared, and a woman can't go on acting and disguising herself forever. A man can grow hair on his face or shave it off. For a woman, disguise must be a perpetual anxiety. 
if she has to get employment, and especially if she has no references, is something very like an impossibility. She nodded gravely. That was how I saw it. So, he pursued, it came to this, that the world-famous Lillimore Virgilin had to come to the surface again somewhere, and in no long time, Lillimore Virgilin, whose type of beauty and general appearance were so marked and unmistakable, whose photographs were known everywhere, the fact is that for some time I couldn't see for the life of me how it could possibly have been done. There were only a few countries, I supposed, of which you knew enough of the language to attempt to live in any of them, and if you did, you would always be so conspicuous by your physical type and your accent. If you attracted attention, discovery might follow at any moment. The more I thought of it, the more marvelous it seemed that you had not been recognized, assuming you were still alive, during the six years or so that had passed, before I heard the full story and guessed at the truth. And then an idea came. There was one country in which your looks and speech would not betray you as a foreigner, your own country, and if there were any corners of the world where you could go with a fair certainty of being unrecognized, the remoter villages of Norway would be among them. And at Mikkelbestad on the Langfjord, which the map told me was one of the remotest, you had a brother who was two thousand pounds richer by your supposed death. You see how it was then that I came to this place on a sketching holiday. Trent stood up and gazed across the valley to the sunlit white peaks beyond. I visited Norway before, but never had such an interesting time. And now, before I return to the haunts of men, let me say again that I shall forget at once all that has happened today. Don't think it was merely a vulgar curiosity that brought me here. There was once a supreme artist whose gifts made me her debtor and servant. Anything that happened to her touched me, and I had a sort of right to go seeking what it really was that had happened. She stood before him, in her coarse and stained clothes, her hands clasped behind her with a face and attitude of perfect dignity. Very well, you stand on your right and I on mine to arrange my own life. Since I am alone in it, I will spend it here where it began. My soul was born here before it went out to have adventures, and it has crept home again for comfort. Believe me, it is not only that, as you say, I am safe from discovery here. That counts for very much, but also I felt I must go and live out my life in my own place. This far-away lonely valley where everything is humble and unspoilt. And the hills and the fjords are as God made them before there were any men. It is all my own, own land. And now, she ended suddenly, we understand one another and we can part friends. She extended her hand, saying, I do not know your name. Why should you? he asked. He bent over the hand and then went quickly from her. At the beginning of the descent, he glanced back once. She waved to him. Halfway down the rugged track, he stopped. Far above, 
a wonderful voice was singing to the glory of the Norse land. Trent looked out upon the wild landscape. Her fatherland, he soliloquized, well, well. They say the strictest parents have the most devoted children. Please join me next time for another curious case here on the locked room. In the meantime, beware of footsteps in the dark. Thank you.